grand narrative is kind of some words we've been throwing around the last few days as we look at as we look at this big picture series that we're going through together as a church. And when we say grand narrative, that's just a nice way of saying the big story of the Bible. The the Bible is a big story, and yet so oftentimes in church world, I'm someone who's grown up in church. I know that so often in church world, what we do is we we grab a specific story or a couple of verses, and we, and we pull truth out of those things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not boohooing that idea. That's a good word, isn't it? Boohoo. We don't use that enough. I'm not boohooing that idea. What I'm saying is, though, is there is a value to us backing back off and looking at the Bible as a whole and saying, hey, what, what is God telling us through the whole story of the Bible? Not just a particular story, but the whole story of the Bible. Is there truth in there? that we can glean, that we can learn from the whole story of the Bible. And so we've journeyed through several things. If you look at the icons here, you can see the first week we kind of did Genesis. Second week we went into the Exodus. We're moving very quickly. The third week was the conquest and the judges. Um, Fourth fourth week we went through the kings and learned that they weren't very, (laughs) they didn't do a great job of leading God's people. Now, last week was kind of interesting because we did the, the poets, the poetical books of the Bible, and that's kind of like, we're going along with this story, then all of a sudden we took a break and we talked about the poetry of the Bible. Well, today, as we jump back in to week um, six, I guess it is, yeah, week six, we talk about the return and exile of the people of Israel. And this is us really jumping back into the story, okay? So it's like we took a pause last week, and this week we jump back into the story that we've been going through. And I think... This story is kind of interesting because it's, it's like this moment of history for the people of Israel is like a black spot for them. It's, it's a very dark moment in their history. And, and really, I think the word that kind of comes to mind is an, it's a, a nightmare for them in this moment, what happens, what unfolds, and what we're about to talk about today. So it's not exactly a happy-go-lucky message, at least the first part of it, as we talk about the exile, but we're going to come around to the, the return as well. The interesting thing with this nightmare that kind of starts to unfold is I, as I was thinking about that, it reminded me of some song lyrics that I've been really enjoying lately. There's a, there's a band called Reliant K, and they have a song that it, it, in one of the lines of their song, it says this. It says, if a nightmare ever does unfold, they're actually, I think, talking about a breakup in this song, but if, if a nightmare ever does unfold, perspective is a lovely hand to hold. Think about that. As a nightmare is unfolding perspective is a lovely hand to hold. And we today, as the readers of this story and and the people looking at the big picture, we have perspective. They didn't have that. I had a nightmare unfold in my life, and I kind of debated back and forth whether I'd share this with you or not, but I decided to. You may think less of me because of it, but uh, I had a nightmare unfold in my life when I was in my early 20s. I was just, um, I guess, in my last couple of years of college, and I'd been working with my uncle enough that I was able to pay for college, but I had a little bit of disposable income, which is a dangerous thing. And I, I, bought, a, uh, I bought a motorcycle and started to get into motorcycle riding. And in Australia, they're very strict on you starting with a small motorcycle for the first 18 months. And then after that, they kind of let you graduate up to whatever size motorcycle you want to have. Well, my 18 months were up, and I was pretty excited about it because I got to graduate to a big, a proper bike, you know, a, a sports bike. So I went out and I, I bought from this guy this really nice sports bike. I was super excited about it. Well, 
I think it was literally the second day of me owning this thing. I went and I uh, took it one evening over to a friend's house and showed it off to him and, you know, we oohed and not over the beauty of this motorcycle. And I was riding home that evening and it was later in the evening and the road in front of me kind of opened up and there was nobody, at least I thought, there was nobody around. And I decided to uh, stretch the legs of the motorcycle a little bit and I went through a couple of the gears, you know, winding it out and um, then decided, okay, the part of my brain that actually was smart said, okay, you better slow back down. So I slowed back down. And as I slowed back down, all of a sudden, my heart completely drops as there's red and blue flashing lights in my, in my mirrors and the sound of a siren coming after me. And so I pulled over to the side of the road and a little nightmare in my life started to unfold as I was um, told in no uncertain terms with very strong words by two police officers of what I'd done and the consequences of what I'd done. And uh, what happened next was my dad had to come and pick me up, which is always fun. They weren't going to let me ride the motorcycle home. And I was faced with a, they are strict, stricter on road things in Australia. I was faced with a $1,500 fine and a loss of my license for six months. And those were the consequences for my action. That was the nightmare that was unfolding. And I can tell you that story with a smile on my face today. Because I have the beautiful hand of perspective to tell you that God used that moment in my life in a powerful way. And it may sound trite or insignificant to you, but to me, in that moment, God got a hold of my life and said, hey man, you need to slow down before you kill yourself. And I won't go into all the details of how he very clearly made, that, made me aware of that. But in this moment, God gave me this, now gives me that where I can hold that and I can see that the, the consequences of my sin or my actions led to that. Well, we're going to look at the consequences of the sin of the people of Israel. If we were to go back to the book of Exodus, we're not going to go there this morning, but if I was to take you to Exodus chapter 20, God very clearly tells the people of Israel in the first of his Ten Commandments, you are to love me and to love me alone. I'm the only God that you're to worship. And yet time and time again, the people turn from him. In that same commandment, he says, I punish those who don't love me to the third and fourth generation, but I love those who do love me to a thousand generations. And we're about to see that part of God. We see this, this part where he has to punish the people, but he also shows his faithful love to the people. So let's go jump back into the story. What we're going to do is go to Second Chronicles. If you're listening, God says First Chronicles. That's a mistake on my part. Second Chronicles 36. It's the very last book of Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Now, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one. There should be one on the floor near you that looks similar to this. And you're free. If you don't own a Bible, you can take this one and take it home if you promise to read it, okay? We have those to give away to people who don't have Bibles. So, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Let me give you a little bit of background here. Okay, so uh, Judah is the last nation. Israel's already destroyed. Judah is left with Jerusalem and God's temple. And they're there. And what happens is King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, whatever you want to call them, he comes and he takes over the city and, and he takes away their king and puts the, new, the king's brother in into rule and says, you pay homage to me, but I'm going to leave your... I'm going to leave your nation alone. You guys just have to pay homage to me. 
and he sets up King Zedekiah, the last king. Let's see what Zedekiah decides to do. So verse 11, chapter 36 of Second Chronicles. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet at the Lord's command. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, not a smart move, who had made him swear allegiance by God. Now notice that that's, that word God there is with a capital G. So he'd made him swear by his own God. He's breaking again a covenant with God because he said, I promise by God that I will have allegiance to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he breaks that as well. He became obstinate and hardened his heart against returning to Yahweh, the God of Israel. All the leaders and the priests and the people multiplied their unfaithful deeds imitating all the detestable practices of the nations. And they defiled the Lord's temple that he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Let me tell you really simply what's happening here. What's happening is the people are worshipping other gods inside God's temple. This temple is a beautiful temple that Solomon built. It's called one of the ancient wonders of the world. This temple that Solomon built towards Yahweh. It's to worship Yahweh. And, And they're here worshipping other gods inside God's temple. It's like, I, I think the best way to talk about it would be to compare it. God says when you worship other gods, it's like committing adultery to me. And it's like they were committing adultery in God's own house to other gods. Does that make sense? That's what it was like to God. Okay, so let's read on and see what God does. Verse 15, But Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, the prophets sending them time and time again, for he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He didn't want to give them the consequences for their sin. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath, listen to this, was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. That's pretty heavy words, right? I mean, significant. There's no remedy for what they were doing to God. Like, I mean, they'd hit the list. Okay, so there's no remedy. So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their choice young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no pity on their young men or their young women, elderly or aged. He handed them all over to him. He took everything to Babylon, all the articles of God's temple, large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. Then the Chaldeans burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's wall, burned down all its palaces, and destroyed all its valuable articles. He deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon, and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. We're about to talk about that. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of, of the desolation until 70 years were fulfilled. So the next 70 years of history, Jerusalem is completely decimated. I mean, it's done. It's toast. The temple's burned. It's destroyed. The walls are actually literally torn down, like knocked over. Like the palace, there's nothing. People don't even live there, okay? So the city is completely destroyed, and the people are taken away. And so what I want to do now is I want to jump into story mode. We'll put on our story caps, and everybody can follow along. And we're going to talk and look at this whole experience 
through the lens and through the life of a guy, a remarkable young man named Daniel, okay? So that's what we're going to do. Daniel's an interesting guy because he was a royal, he was in the upper crust of the society in Jerusalem when this all took place. And he was probably a young man, maybe not even a teenager yet, when all this was happening. And what happens was he got to see the Babylonian people, that this army come and attack, the Chaldean army come and attack his city that he'd grown up in. And what that looked like, the text doesn't elaborate on that, but there's other texts that do. 18 months, they were under siege. They're inside, trapped inside the city for 18 months. They had a water supply inside the city, but the city ran out of food. And so Daniel gets to see all of this happen. He gets to see people eating parts of animals that they weren't ceremonially allowed to eat to try and stay alive. And it got so desperate, and I, I, excuse me for saying this, but, but, but it's reality. It got so desperate that they actually turned to eating children. I mean, like, that, that's how hungry they were. Daniel saw all of this happen. And then finally, when they're at kind of that, that lowest of lows, the army, army comes in, breaks down the wall, and kills a bunch of people, and then takes some of them off to be slaves. Daniel is one of them. He has three friends that go with him. And they're all taken across on an 800 to 900 mile journey, I'll show you a map of it, around to Babylon. They couldn't go straight across because there was a desert. So they, they marched eight to 900 miles around to Babylon. And at some point along the way, we can assume through the text that Daniel is most likely made into a eunuch. It says in the text that he was, he was put under the care of the chief official eunuch. Okay, So he's put under the care of this guy, which would imply that it's not explicitly clear, but it would imply that he's made into a eunuch. So think about Daniel's life. I mean, we're talking about, like, the lowest of the lows. Here's a young, young man who sees just all these horrible things happen, and yet he stands up, and he faithfully loves God, and he faithfully leads the people. Now, this is your first fill in the blank there, if you're taking notes this morning. Daniel gives leadership and encourages faithfulness, excuse me, among the exiles for the next 70 years. That's completely remarkable if you ask me. Because if I'd been Daniel, I don't know if I'd want anything to do with God. If I'd seen all those things happen, if I'd had all those trials to go through, I don't know if I'd want to honor God. The first story we see this happening with is Daniel and his friends are presented with this uh, chief official of the eunuchs. He, he gives them food from the king's table, and he said, hey, you've got to eat this food, and you'll grow strong eating this food as you learn the ways you're going to be turned into an advisor to the king. We're going to train you up to be smart, and you'll, you'll be an advisor to the king. And Daniel says, I'm not allowed to eat that. My God doesn't permit, permit me to eat those things. And the, the official says, well, that's too bad. And Daniel says, well, let's try this. Why don't you give me and my friends 10 days to eat what we believe is right. We'll eat vegetables and beans and these other things that are allowed to eat, we're allowed to eat. And you compare us with the other guys. So 10 days later, God completely honors them. As they stand in front of this official, he looks at them and notices that their skin is healthier, that these guys are stronger, and that their intelligence is greater than these other guys. And God continues to honor Daniel as he chooses to honor God. That was a small thing right at the start of their lives. But it's like these experiences that Daniel's faced with, these trials that Daniel's faced with, faced with get harder and harder. The next one we hear about is about Daniel's three friends. We don't know where Daniel is in, 
is in the story in Daniel chapter 3. But he's probably off doing official business for the king. He's a high-ranking official at this point for King Nebuchadnezzar. But he tells the story of his friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They're with a bunch of people, and they're advisors as well, but they're instructed to bow down and worship this huge statue of Nebuchadnezzar that's made of gold that he's constructed in this big plane that everybody's to bow down and worship. I mean, this guy's an egotistical maniac. I mean, this guy's crazy, but he's built a statue to himself and he's requiring all the upper crust of his society, these, these officials and everybody, to bow down and to worship him. Well, he's, the king's notified that these three guys aren't bowing down. And so he calls them across. He knows these guys. These are some of his best advisors. And he calls them across and he says, hey guys, what's going on? Did you not understand that, you know, when the music plays, you ought to bow down and worship. And if you don't, you're going to get thrown into a furnace of fire, okay? They have kind of weird punishments back in the day. And so they say, yeah, we understand that, but we only believe in Yahweh. He's the one true God, and he's the only one worthy of our worship. And he's able to save us from you even, the king, if he wants to. But even if he doesn't, we still believe he's real, and we know that he is the one true God. And to that's like waving a red flag in front of a bull. Nebuchadnezzar in this moment flips out and says, make the fire seven times hotter. He gets really crazy. And so I don't know how you measure seven times, but they make the fire seven times hotter. And uh, it says in the Bible in chapter 3, it's an interesting story, Daniel 3, that they get a couple of these guards to bind Daniel and his, um, sorry, not Daniel, Daniel's three friends, bind them up, and to throw them into the fire. And as these guards, these seasoned warriors, are throwing them into the fire, the fire is so hot that these guards literally die from the heat. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar looks up and sees these three guys walking around inside this furnace, free men, like their straps are gone, and that there's a fourth being there with them. And Nebuchadnezzar looks and exclaims, he says, didn't I throw three guys in the fire? And the fourth guy in there looks like the son of the gods. And in this moment, we have this beautiful picture of God being with us in the toughest of moments, being with us in the fire, as he was with these three guys. It's just a beautiful story, I believe, an illustration of how Jesus is with us in those toughest of moments. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, guys, come back out of the fire. The three of them come out, and they can't smell smoke on them. There's no hairs even singed on them. And Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, you're right. Your God is the one true God. And so the story continues on. And Nebuchadnezzar, he moves on. He, he passes on. And then as his, as his relatives, we don't know if it's his son or who, whoever gets to rule next, is actually overthrown by a new empire. So the Babylonians, it's, it's in your notes there, that it, the thing that changes next is that this Babylonian empire is taken over by this Persian empire. And it's really kind of strange because Daniel's been one of the chief advisors, one of the chief, chief officials to the king of Babylon. And now, as this new empire comes, he's made a chief official to this, to this Persian empire, to this Persian king. I mean, that's, that's completely bizarre to me. But again, I think it's a sign of God's faithfulness to Daniel to keep him safe in this transition and change. And some of the Persian officials don't like that. They don't like Daniel. They don't like who he is and what he stands for. And so they devise a way to trick him. What they do is they come up with a plan and go to the king and say, Hey, king, 
why don't we make it a law that for the next 30 days, we're only allowed to worship you. We're only allowed to pray to you. We're not allowed to pray to anybody else. And the king says, well, that sounds kind of cool. I like that. And so he makes it into law, which he cannot change under their laws and, and guidelines. And so these men rush off to watch Daniel because they know Daniel and they know that he's going to be faithful to his God. And they see Daniel go to his window, open his doors towards, towards Jerusalem and kneel down and pray to Yahweh, his God, the one true God. And as he does, does that, they run back to the king and say, hey, king, you know that Daniel guy? Well, he prayed to his God. He didn't pray to you. And the king realizes in this moment, he's furious that he's been tricked, but he has to follow through on his command. And so he takes Daniel and he puts him into this pit of lions. Again, weird punishments. I guess that's how they rolled back in the day. But he throws them, throws Daniel into this pit of lions. And the king goes back to his palace, but it tells us in the Bible that he can't even sleep because he's so distraught about what's happening. And he wakes up, I mean, he gets up first thing the next morning and runs down to the lion's den and says, cries out, says, Daniel, Daniel, are you okay? Did your God save you? And Daniel says, yes, my Lord, my King, I'm here, I'm safe. My God sent his angel to watch over me and to shut the lion's mouth. And so this miracle happens, proving to this new king that God is real, just like God proved through Daniel to the old king that he was the one true God. And so he pulls him out of the pit and the king gets those officials who tricked him and throws them into the, the lion's den. And the text is kind of graphic here, but it, it tells us that before they even got to the ground, that they're ripped to pieces. I mean, these were hungry lions. This was a, a definite miracle of God. Now, I know some of you have heard those stories over and over again, but I tell them again because I want you to see how significant it was what God was doing in this time of exile through these through these three young men and through Daniel. There's a few things I think that we can learn, and I've given you some space there in your notes if you want to write these things down. Things that we can learn from the life of Daniel. The first thing is this. We learn that we, we can and we should follow God in difficulty. It's just not, it's not just the good times that we're called to follow God. It's in difficulty we're called to follow God. God. Think about all that adversity that Daniel went through, and yet he still chose to honor God. It's incredible to me. If you're wondering again how the people felt, I want to read for you quickly a psalm. It's Psalms 137. You can read it with me, or I can just turn there and read it for you. This is somebody who wrote a song about how they felt when they were put into exile, the people of Israel. And I'm sure these are some of the emotions that Daniel and his friends felt as well. By the rivers of Babylon, I'll just give you a disclaimer, the back end of this psalm is very graphic. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. There we hung our lyres on the poplar trees, for our captors there asked us for songs. Sing us the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it, destroy it down to its foundation. Daughter Babylon, doomed for destruction, happy is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. Happy is the one who takes your little ones, little ones and dashes them against the rocks. I mean, that's some pretty raw emotion, right? 
That's how these people felt. And yet Daniel decides with his friends to follow God even in difficulty. The second thing that we learn from Daniel, I think, is that (coughs) we need to know that God is with us in the fire. We should know that God is with us even in the fires, in those toughest moments of our lives. God is with us. He is faithful. And he is with us. And so I just want to say that today. I know most of us probably aren't in a fire right now. But it's not a question of if. I I believe it's a question of when. We all go through hardship in our lives. And I want to remind you that just as there was a fourth being with them in the fire, Jesus is with us in those darkest, worst moments of our lives. And this story very clearly shows us in this darkest moment of Israel's history, God is still with them. I think that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture. Third thing that we learn, and I feel like if I was to summarize these guys' lives in, in a few words, this would be it. Fear God more than man. Fear God more than we fear man. Time and time again, they didn't fear these kings who could have their heads in a minute, you know? These irrational kings who seemed to fire up in just a moment. They chose to fear God more than man. And I feel like that's a good message for me today because I tend to just naturally worry about what people think about me. I worry about, you know, people's opinions and pleasing people and all that sort of stuff. But very clearly we're told throughout the Bible and we're even told through the story of these guys' lives that we're to fear God and not people. And so I, I just want you to hear that today. Well, I have some good news. The exile didn't go on for more than 70 years. At the end of 70 years, God worked a miracle for the people to return. So we're going to jump back to Second Chronicles and finish what we didn't finish reading earlier. Second Chronicles 36, we're going to finish up. I think it's verse 22. Let me get there. Second Chronicles 36. Yes, verse 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The Lord put it in the mind of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout the entire kingdom and also put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in Judea. Whoever among you of his people may go up, and may the Lord his God be with him. Now we can read through that text and go, oh yeah, yeah, okay, got it, they were going to return. This is crazy. This is an incredible miracle that God works for the people of Israel to return them to the land they came from. I, I believe it's a miracle on two fronts. The first miracle is that this kind of pagan king, I mean, he doesn't, I mean, he hasn't grown up knowing God. He says, God has told me to make a temple for him in Jerusalem, in, in Judea. He wants to rebuild his temple. That's a miracle. God put it in his mind and in his heart to do that. And the miracle kind of continues in, if we read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that he even sent supplies to make it happen, Okay. The second miracle is he says, anybody throughout my entire kingdom, which is the known world at the time, if you're a a Jewish person, you can return from your captivity to this place and to start worshipping God again. That's two very, very significant miracles. I mean, that just doesn't happen. 
I mean, that's, when do you hear of a, uh, of a king in a kingdom that's been obliterated ever being reinstituted like that? I mean, it's, it's a miracle work by God. And yet, even with this blessing of this miracle happening, the rebuilding process is not easy. The next characters that we're introduced to in the text are guys called Ezra and Nehemiah. And you fill in the blank here, it says simply this, Ezra and Nehemiah lead the people back from exile to rebuild Jerusalem. So these, these guys are given the task to lead God's people back and to rebuild the temple foundations, the wall of Jerusalem, and the temple itself, and to reinstitute this worship of God, which they hadn't done for years and years and years. They had to pull out these old scrolls and learn again what it looked like to love, to honor, and to worship God. And so this is a significant moment. And these guys, Ezra and Nehemiah, lead the charge. And I wish I could tell you that they went back and it was all easy and rosy and it, everything was repaired and it, was, it went well. But as we read through the text, we don't have time to go into all of it today, but as we read through the text of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that they faced a lot of op- op- opposition even though they had God's blessing. They had God's hand with them. They faced great opposition. And I feel like there's something that we can learn from that. So recapping on what we've covered today, let's go back and ask ourselves three questions. The first question I want to ask is this. Why did God allow the exile of his chosen people? And I believe the simple answer is this. Because there must be consequences for sin. God ceases to be God if he doesn't fulfill on what he said is going to happen. God is said to be our Father, our Heavenly Father. And just like as a parent, I have to discipline my son. I have to follow through with what I say is going to happen if he does something. God had to follow through with his people and say, Hey, I told you, and I have to discipline you. The Bible tells us God disciplines those he loves. He loved his people. And so there had to be consequences for their sins. The next question that we need to ask is this. Did God abandon his people in this time? I think that's a question we ask when we go through difficulty. We say, God, have you abandoned me? In this hard moment, have you walked away from me? And yet through Daniel's life, through his friend's life, we see that God was with his people even in the fire, even in the hottest, hardest moment. He is with his people. And I really, again, just want to encourage you that when you do go through hardship, think of this story. And think of that image of Jesus even with them in the fire in those toughest moments. The third question I want to ask is this. What do we learn from the return of God's people? What do we learn from their return? And I think this is significant, and this is what I was hinting at a moment ago, that even with God's blessing, rebuilding isn't always easy. It can be hard. Living a life that honors God is hard. Let me explain that a little bit. What I want to do is, just to kind of finalize and to wrap up today, I want for us to zoom back out, because that's what I told you this series is about, the big picture. As we look at this big picture, I believe this period of time for, for Jerusalem is again a picture of our situation with God. Okay, so God's here. Not in my hand, but God's here. Just picture God here. He's created us. He's made us for life and for worship with him. And yet, we learn from the Bible, we learn from Genesis that sin separated us, that it tore us away from God. 
Does that make sense? So there's this sin that separated us from God. Well, I believe that that's very symbolic of this exile. The people are torn away by this exile from, from the land. And so if you want to keep the analogy going, just like the people of Israel were in exile, we all are into a, born into a world of sin where we're in exile from who we are, were created to be, the perfection that God wanted from us and the way that he wanted us to live. And the only miracle that can return us from our exile, the only miracle that is going to see us reunited with God is Jesus. Jesus is the one who came to seek and to save the lost. The scriptures tell us, and I've said this scripture many times, I'll say it again, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but should have eternal life. God is the one who works a miracle, sends his son to come and to save us. And so I want to challenge you, if you don't believe, if, if you have would say that you haven't reconnected with God, if you haven't made a decision to follow him, that you can simply do that today. Romans tells us, the book of Romans in the Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved. It's not something dramatic or hard. It's actually quite a simple process of saying, God, I don't want to be in control anymore. My life is simple and I need you. I need your help. And so I I believe there's that beautiful illustration. The illustration, I believe, continues, though, for those of us who have said that prayer, who have said, Jesus, I need you to come and to help me to be the person that you want me to be. When we've made that decision to follow Christ, we see that even with God's blessing, that rebuilding is hard. Just because we've prayed that prayer doesn't mean that I'm a perfect person now. I still struggle with sin. I still struggle to live and to be the person that he's called me to be. And each of us, I believe, struggle with those things. But I want to encourage you today to be faithful, to be like Ezra, to be like Nehemiah, these guys who continued to stand up and to rebuild the temple, even though it was hard. The the book talks about, the book of Nehemiah talks about when they were rebuilding, that they literally were like building with a sword in one hand and a stone in the other hand. Like they're rebuilding and ready for all the trouble that's coming against them. And I think that's a beautiful picture of of what we have to be like as we live this new life in Christ. We're told that when we we come to know Christ, we're born again. And so this rebuilding process that happens after we're born again through life is one we're walking through together. So I just want to encourage you today, I'm going to ask Landon to come up. I, I want to encourage you today to just think about today, okay, God, what are you saying to me out of this big pic- this big picture? What are you reminding me of today? What is the truth that you're trying to illuminate in my heart? What am I forgetting? What do I need to be reminded of? Ask yourselves those questions. Reflect on those things in this time.